Bruce Newberry. The food dude. Well, we've been talking a lot about Italian-American eating, and at least one of our discussions centered around what is now considered gourmet food was standard fare, and uh, one of our friends referred to it as peasant food, and much of it, or a bit of it, was grown in the backyard or in a nearby garden, the Italian Garden. That's the name of a movement. It is the name of a lecture that's coming to the University of Rhode Island, and it is the labor of love of Mary Minetti, who joins us on the line. Mary, nice to have you with us. Oh, nice to be here. Thank you, Bruce, for inviting me. We uh, have memories of uh, perhaps a family member or a neighbor who had a garden and it went beyond, oh, I'm going to grow a few tomatoes or I'm going to raise a few flowers. It was a labor of love and it was a a way of life for these folks. And uh, you had someone in your family who was the epitome of this. Tell us about your grandfather. Yes, my grandfather is, uh, my paternal grandfather is the real inspiration for this project, although all of my uh, other grandparents were um, Italian immigrants who gardened, but it was really my paternal grandfather, um, who was an immigrant from Sant'Angelo d'Alife in uh, Caserta in the province of Campania, Mm -hmm. who gardened every day at my house and I just uh, adored him and tagged along uh, behind him and learned about the garden and really came to know and admire his whole lifestyle and uh, really inspired the project that I do today. What did he grow? Ah, He grew all the classics, all the classics that are grown in an Italian-American garden, Uh, uh, several kinds of tomatoes, uh, he grew eggplant, garlic, of course, uh, <laughs> several kinds of uh, peppers, and uh, a lot of greens, escarole, Swiss chard, um, the chicoria, the dandelion greens. Um, but uh, what I'm most nostalgic for is the fig tree that he grew. Mm. He grew a fig tree. Um, in So he gardened it at his house, and he, but he would come every day to our house, which was a few miles away, and he would um, had a much larger garden because we lived more into the country. And there he um, had several fig trees and the very large garden that contained all those vegetables I just mentioned. Now, when we talk about growing those crops and those foods today, we speak fondly and use terms like heirloom. He didn't realize he was growing heirloom (laughs) vegetables at the time, did he? No, they they would have never recognized that word (laughs) or many of the words we use today of sustainable and all the things that really do identify what they were doing. But they just were living the lifestyle that they knew and just doing what came naturally to them. Um, they they couldn't even imagine uh, not doing it. It was, um, you know, asking them, uh, why do you grow a garden was like asking them, why do you breathe? <laughs> of course it you. It really you, was. You, it really was. It was just who they were. And they got, they got more out of it than uh, any of, of us. I mean, you mentioned the eggplant, and I'm sure that those grew in proliferation and and you were giving them away at some point during harvest time. Exactly. But as much as there was bounty coming out of that garden, it really did as much for the the 
psychology and the soul of the person who tended the garden, in this case, your grandfather. But many people who are listening to our chat here, uh, Mary Minetti, have memories of a family member or a neighbor who tended a garden and it was a way of life. Exactly. Yes, it was a whole lifestyle for them. It was beyond, we say way of life, and and people may think, oh, you know, they were farmers or whatever. It it wasn't the agricultural lifestyle. They didn't grow it to to make money off of it. They grew it to eat, but they grew it to to help themselves, and it was part of their being. Explain that part of it. Exactly, exactly. So these were immigrants that left a lifestyle, you know, very well connected to nature in the outdoors. Um, if anyone's been to um, Italy, especially Southern Italy, the, be- the beauty, the sun. Uh, so they grew up immersed. It was a hard lifestyle for sure. I mean, that's why they had to leave. There were some uh, hardships there. But when they got to places like Pittsburgh and uh, Providence and they were in smoky mills sometimes or in coal mines or in places that didn't remind them of home. So when they were in their garden, it was a chance to reconnect to the lifestyle that they had to leave behind. Um, And it, it was, you know, they, they got to um, grow the traditional foods that they were used to eating so that, you know, they felt more comfortable, um, you know, in the new, in this new world for them. And also, you know, they knew the language, I always say they knew the language of plants. They understood plants, even if they couldn't understand the language um, that was being spoken all around them, you know, um, not only English, but they may have been working side by side with someone in a steel mill mill that spoke um, Russian or, you know, another. So, so it was a place to, to feel comfortable again, to feel, to, to really be in their element. And this is what you are teaching and what you're involved in with this project, the Italian Garden Project. And an Italian garden, as you've described, is different from a garden. I mean, anybody can have a garden and grow a few roses or tomatoes or whatnot, but you're, you're able to get across how the garden and the Italian garden comes alive and brings the gardener to life. Exactly. Yes. I mean, it, uh, like we've talked about, it was a, it's a whole lifestyle. It's, it's, you know, the seed starting in the, in the, you know, early, uh, the late winter, early mm-hmm. spring, you know, where the windowsills, I remember were all lined up with, um, seeds, you know, no fancy grow lights for these folks. <laughs> so, you know, it was, they were just growing. And even now when I visit, uh, my Italian American friends, they're, you know, their upstairs bedrooms it can be filled with plants that are started in sunny windowsills. And so, it, you know, they were starting the seeds. They were then, you know, planting and, and harvesting. And, you know, it was a year-round uh, way of life. And, and it gave them purpose and meaning, especially into their older years. I mean, uh, after my grandfather retired, he garden full time and it gave them, you know, a sense of purpose within the family that he was still providing food for his family and, and it gave him physical exercise. You know, he, he was out in that garden, you know, uh, reaching down, picking, uh, reaching up to pick, uh, figs and apples. And so it was, you know, it was, uh, was a whole workout. So it was a way to, to keep them physically and mentally and, um, 
uh, feeling, you know, healthy and whole. And I think, and that's the true, that's true for gardens for so, so many of us. And, um, and uh, yeah, it, I want to show how this way of life around the garden is so conducive to well-being and to health on so many levels. And you'll be showing us and telling about this in a virtual lecture at the University of Rhode Island coming up on January 18th. Tell us how we can attend and how we can find out more about this, and then we'll continue chatting about the Italian Garden Project. Tell us how uh, we can attend. Yes, so um, I'll have on my website, theitaliangardenproject.com, a link where you can register for the talk. Um, You register for a Zoom, um, uh, they'll send you a Zoom link, and then you just log on um, at 7 p.m. next Thursday evening. And... um, yeah, we we I'll, I'll be talking about this and showing slides and showing talking about also my visits to Rhode Island and the lovely uh, Italian American gardeners I've met in Rhode Island and the wonderful welcome I received there. So um, I'm uh, excited to even uh, learn more and get to know more people within the Rhode Island community through Wonderful. the talk. Well, we uh, definitely have a great heritage around here of people who just like your grandfather and uh, his time there in the coal country near Pittsburgh, a <laughs> lot of people who want to show off and say, well, come look at my peppers and come, <laughs> come look at my banana peppers and my scarole and uh, yeah, exactly. And my like fig this. trees. Yes, I mean, the, the idea that as far north as Rhode Island, they're still growing incredible fig trees. Mm-hmm. I, I just love that. I, they do have a lot to be proud of. I mean, Pittsburgh's cold, but it's even colder there. And I think um, I think it's uh, it's really amazing to see some of the, the fig, uh, fig trees that still grow that far north. Pretty amazing. Are there names for the uh, crops that uh, kind of change either between Italy and here, or even between a place like Pennsylvania and a place like Rhode Island. I mean, uh, if if uh, a couple of these gardeners get together and they start talking about their beans and their their uh, uh, lettuces and tomatoes and things, is there a, a little bit of a of a of a glossary definition that we might have to toss out? Well, you know, with with Italian because it, um, you know Italian. Um, the garden, it was always something that was passed on orally, you know, things weren't written down so much because a lot of the gardeners, you know, in in, throughout history were uh, illiterate, you know, they were, they were gardeners and they, um, you know, didn't um, write down names of things. Everything was hyper local. So if in one town you might call I especially think of like what we call rapini, um, how different that is. And everywhere I go, even with throughout the country, um, you know, somebody calls it different things. Mm. So I, actually the woman um, I visited in Rhode Island and shared her rapini seeds with me or rapa seeds or rab. Uh, some people yes. call it broccoli rab. She called it rabi, rabi seeds. Yes. So I, I love that. So um, that might be a, a local thing to to um, Rhode Island more than you know we would. Uh, it's kind it of a, it's kind of a Boston thing because commercially uh, Robbie was available and it was there was a brand name of Robbie uh-huh. that was uh, uh-huh. that was offered in the supermarket. It was called Andy Boy, 
And uh, oh, okay, it was and actually, they called it Robbie. Robbie, Robbie yes. Robbie. <laughs> and yeah, well, that's new to me. Yeah. But you're right; it's definitely a point of uh, of discussion. I won't say contention. Well, sometimes it's it's contention, but it's a definitely oh, yeah. or confusion. <laughs> confusion too. If you're trying to document um, these seeds, you know that that they do have slight variations and not only slight variations of the actual seed itself, but then variations of the name and variations that it, it, it can be, uh, it can be mind boggling, but, um, but it, but things weren't written, you know, it is, isn't a written tradition, you know, most of this mm. was an oral tradition. And I think that's where the, um, the, um, you know, they, they didn't, most of it wasn't sold commercially. So sure. I always say we know what an Oreo is because it's sold commercially and packages an Oreo. These seeds were just handed down from generation to generation, grown in different towns throughout Italy, and then brought here um, by the immigrants decades and sometimes a century ago. So the names um, became, you know, were local to where they came from in Italy and then became local to where they were planted in, in the U.S. So it's, it's really fascinating and interesting to me to, um, to see how that happens. Mary, do you find that part of the appeal of learning the Italian garden experience is the fact that it can be done in a fairly small space and really lends itself to what's called the urban gardening movement? Oh, exactly. Exactly. You know, when these uh, immigrants came, they, you know, didn't always have a big space to plant in. So they, but any little space they had, they were going to fill it with uh, vegetables to eat because, you know, you can't eat grass. What good was grass? Um, so <laughs> exactly. So they, they planted um, at any backyard, whether it was a little, um, you know, row house, you know, in Boston or, you know, whatever size space they had, they, they planted it all. So it definitely, um, it has a, a lot to, uh, the tradition of this and the history of this has a lot to teach modern day urban gardeners about how productive a small plot of land can be. How many generations are you able to go back and have you been able to uh, discover in uh, lecturing and speaking and meeting all these gardeners and descendants of gardeners? Uh, how many generations have I person? you mean in my family or uh, have generations? You have, what uh, what, what oh. is the greatest number of uh, generations as we, we go through time? I mean, we're talking about a period of time when someone might have come, like your grandfather came to uh, work in Pennsylvania. I mean, that was a few years ago, and it uh, gets further and further as time goes by. Exactly, exactly. And I found that um, actually in California, I've spent a great deal of time in California, especially Northern California, researching uh, Italian gardens. Although, you know, many of us from the East don't think there's, you know, any Italians out there on on the West Coast, or at least not we, we the uh, not the heritage that we have back here. That's an excellent point. E exactly, but 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 there are there are generations um, who came out. Uh, it, it's interesting because in California, it's mostly Northern uh, Italians, mm. and um, and I find you know generations um, that go back you know to the late eighteen hundreds and seeds that have been brought over really early. Um, uh, you know, we, we had more of the wave, you know, right around, you know, 1900, even late 1800s here as well. But, um, 
but it's it's really interesting. I have seeds from a um, uh, from California that were given to me by a gentleman from Sardinia that were brought to California from like the 1870s or something like that. So mm. that's that's some of the oldest, um, yeah, that I have. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. And on your website, you have some traditional Italian-American vegetable gardeners, and you have some photographs of uh, some of these uh, men at work. And it, they're men. <laughs> uh, this, was a, this was a man's project here, wasn't it? Well, it was, but you know, the the women were out there too when they when they could. They were often the women were often cooking what the men brought in from the garden. But um, yes. often, like just the lovely woman I I uh, visited in Warwick, Rhode Island, mm-hmm. um, Erminia, she still maintains a garden um, and uh, still a, a big fig tree there. So um, a lot of times couples did it together, and then when one passes, they keep the tradition. They oh, keep yes. it for you know really sentimental reasons because you know they, it helps them remember the loved one that passed that they gardened um, side by side with. So, but yeah, there are a lot of uh, a lot of men who um, I think it, it. I'd love to see it because it, it was a way for you know, these Italian men who had to be strong in. Um, some kind, sometimes these stoic types to, to be able to nurture and create, you know, uh, do these things that, that they didn't get to do so much in the outside world. You know, they got to, you know, raise a tiny seed from, um, you know, uh, raise a tiny plant from seed and create, you know, a, a different garden every year, almost like a, a painting, you know, um, a, they were almost like a canvas that they would do. So I think it, it really brought out a, an aspect, um, not that it wasn't hard work too, it was hard physical work, but I think there, there was a quality uh, about gardening that, um, that really um, helped men feel more maybe well-rounded. That is an excellent perspective. We look forward to hearing much more at Mary Minetti's lecture about the Italian Garden Project. It's a virtual lecture. It's uh, through University of Rhode Island, and it's January 18th. And Mary, tell us again how we can be part of it and be there with you. Yes, please register um, through uh, my website at www theitaliangardenproject.com and you can um, do a simple registration and be sent the link and then just click on it um, at 7 p.m. on uh, next Thursday, January 18th and join us. Excellent. And wherever you are within Sound of Our Voice here, you can certainly participate via Zoom. Mary, great to talk to you. Uh, What a wonderful uh, visit we've had and we've gone back in time and uh, we're looking forward to hearing much, much more. Uh, Thanks once again for being with us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm always uh, thrilled to share what my project's all about and I appreciate it. Thank you, Bruce. Anytime. Mary Minetti, The Italian Garden Project. When there's a real chill in the air, there are a few things that can delight all your senses, like the wonderful things going on in the kitchen. The minute you hit the door, all your senses get engaged. The smell of the good things cooking. You hear the sizzle. You just can't wait to taste, particularly when that cook is preparing Gaspar's linguisa or churis. Adding Gaspar's to any one of your favorite dishes, chili, pizza, omelets, sandwiches, lasagna, pasta sauce, there's almost no end to the wonderful ways Gaspar's can be served, and Gaspar's linguisa 
pizza comes in slices, franks, cocktail bites, and the traditional sausage. There's even sausage out of the casing for sauces and stuffing. So now that the cold weather is here, it's time to treat yourself to the unique taste of Gaspar's Linguiça once again. Available at all major supermarkets, Gaspar's, the Portuguese sausage the whole world has been enjoying for 100 years. And today we're going to be making beef Rajal. That, of course, is Carmi, played by Jeremy Allen White from The Bear, the FX series Golden Globe Award winning and all that. And there are two kinds of people, those who watch it, binge watch it, watch it avidly, watched it avidly, and those who have no idea what I'm talking about. The Bear is a uh, one of those uh, trendy series that... You watch 14 episodes at a time, and it's been on for several seasons, and the plot is all about restaurants and food. And a cliffhanger season ender back a year or so ago centered around the cozy Italian comfort food yet elegant dish brajol, or as he called it with his Midwestern <laughs> New York California accent, whatever. Uh, I don't know how he says it. I can't say it like that. Brajal. Have some Brajal. Thank you, Tony. We need Tony Soprano here. Brajal is an Italian-style roulade. It is rolled. It is stuffed. And because no one would actually sit and order or cook something called rolled and stuffed meat, the Italians, in the language of food, which is the language of love, call it brajol. It's also called involtini. It translates to slice of meat rolled over coals. But there's more to it than that. It is thin. It is pounded thin. And it is stuffed with prosciutto, capicola, as we'll hear, breadcrumbs, rigotta, mozzarella, sometimes the rind of the cheese, and herbs. It can be grilled. It can be pan-fried. It can be braised. It is on very, very few restaurant menus. Pulcinella's has it, and uh, Sammy calls it his father's recipe. It is braised in Sunday gravy, and it has its roots in Italian cuisine. It is a Sunday family dinner dish, and that was the plot point on the bear. Now, it's having a moment, because the bear won a Golden Globe, and everybody wants to get on the bandwagon, and on the chuck wagon, and so no less than food and wine is on board with a brajol. It's a perfect dish for a weekend project, a Sunday dinner, or when you're looking to make an impressive dish for guests. It is impressive. And uh, it is suggested that it is seared and then cooked in the sauce. But as you're going to hear from someone who knows his way around brajol, that's not necessarily the preferred way to do it. The wonderful thing about Italian cooking, and at the same thing, the exasperating thing about Italian cooking is no two Italian cooks agree on anything. I suppose that no two cooks of any stripe agree precisely 100% about everything, which is why you can't copyright a recipe. But uh, this recipe is from Marianne Williams, a test kitchen professional for the publishing company that publishes food and wine for a long time, many years. This was from the Food and Wine Test Kitchen. So these this is done by at least one pro. And you take flank steak that has been butterflied 
and pounded to an, a quarter inch thickness of its life. And then you layer it with prosciutto, top it with toasted panko crumbs, building layers with pine nuts, a layer of minced garlic, a layer of fresh parsley, two types of cheese, Parmigiano-Reggiano and Pecorino-Romano. And you layer and layer and layer. And then you're going to roll it. And it's going to become this wonderful roll secured with twine or with toothpicks. And I think in the bear, I think Carmi secures it with some kind of a, some kind of a pick or a spear of some type. And then you sear, says food and wine, in a brazier or Dutch oven until browned all over. And then you braise it in the tomato sauce, at least with this recipe. And you cook it very gently and very slowly. You slice it into medallions. It looks so impressive. It is amazing. Nothing like brajol. 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 Boom. Take it outside, fellas. Ice cream makes every day special. We know that. Look who you're talking to. Island Homemade Vermont Ice Cream. And at our cafe at the Scoop Shop at Island Homemade Vermont Ice Cream, every day is special. Every Monday is Milkshake Monday. A milkshake for five bucks. Every Tuesday is Teaser Tuesday. It's a teaser scoop for $2. Every Wednesday is Waffle Cone Wednesday. Get a dollar off a small or large cone. Thursday, we float. Special price on all our floats to float you into the weekend. We're here every day from 7 to 7 with scoops and soups, cones and coffee. Come on in any day. Come on in every day. The Cafe at Island Homemade Vermont Ice Cream Scoop Shop, Williston Road at 21 Commerce Street. We're here in the Dave's Marketplace Broadcast Bistro, and we've been talking about brajol. That's the only way I can say it. I can't say it like uh, Jeremy Allen White says it in The Bear. But uh, (laughs) again, I'm not as well-traveled as he, nor a Hollywood actor. So the brajol is having a moment, thanks to The Bear. And the bear is having a moment, thanks to the Golden Globes. It won Best Comedy Series. I didn't even realize it was a comedy. And Jeremy Allen White and a few of the other actors won. And it is a very engrossing and compelling show to watch. It's great to binge. The food shots are amazing. Both the high-end restaurant shots that we see in flashback, that uh, Carmi worked in some of the world's greatest restaurants in his... I don't know what tour his uh, uh, finding himself tour, his validation tour. And then even the family meals that come out of the Italian restaurant in Chicago are amazing. And the sounds are great and all that. The dialogue, I can take or leave, but that's just me. Nevertheless, the Brajol plays a part in one episode. It was a season ender year or two back. And we find out that it was a big reveal and so forth and on. But a lot of, of, uh, real key fans, fan girls, if you will, have started making brajol as a result of seeing this on this episode. Now it's an amazing thing to make. I love brajol always have. It is a signature Italian dish. It's an old school Italian dish. It's so hearty. It smells so great when it is being cooked in the kitchen 
And if someone has it on a special, well, don't hesitate to order it. Pulcinella's in Burlington, Vermont, has it on its regular menu. And Sammy says it is his dad's recipe. Now, you find it listed in the Contorni menu, which means it is the Contorni section of the menu, which is pretty far down. It is uh, right between the Polpette, the giant meatball, and the Salsicia, the sausage. And the Brajol is listed as Sammy's dad's recipe for braised beef rolled and filled with salami, provolone, onions, and egg, and it is braised in marinara. Now, as we talked about in the food and wine description, that's a point of some discussion. I don't think I'll say contention, but it uh, is a a point of some discussion as to whether you braise it in the sauce or whether you brown it, sear it, and then just uh, kiss it in the sauce a little bit or put the sauce over it. That's a discussion that I had with someone from the old school who goes way, way back. In fact, is one of the uh, voices of Brajol in restaurants all over Rhode Island. It's not a restaurant. Knows how the, uh, our friend here knows how to cook and knows recipes. And his name is Carmine Balzano, but don't call him Carmi. Carmine Balzano who started Frederick Veal many years ago on Federal Hill in Providence, Rhode Island. And Frederick Veal supplies some of the finest restaurants all over the state. In fact, I went to Sardella's in Newport, one of the best Italian restaurants, old school, celebrating 40-some-odd years, and uh, one of the great straight-ahead Italian restaurants that you're going to find. It's in Newport. Been there for a long time, many years, as I say. And uh, Richard Sardella and I have talked many times on this show about Italian food and traveling and many, many other aspects. And I said, Rich, what about Brajol? Let's talk Brajol. He says, you know, we run it as a special on an occasional basis, and it comes from Frederick. Well, it's all I have to know. So I dialed up Carmine and uh, (laughs) brought him out of retirement to talk for a few minutes about brajol. Well, brajol is any meat rolled with a stuffing. Are we talking one particular dish made a certain way every time, or are there different ways that people have, like yourself, of making brajol? There are hundreds of different brajols, what people like. Some people stuff it with vegetables and a little bit of meat and cheese, or just vegetable and cheese, or, you know, basically it's just a rolled of meat with stuffing. So Uh, we make we make a veal brajol. That's what we make. mm -hmm. Um, We use flank meat. We tenderize it. We flatten it out. We have a a mix that we do with my Italian sausage meat. I mix it with a little bit of breadcrumb, olive oil, granulated garlic, and Romano cheese. We mix that all up. It's like a little stuffing mix, but mostly meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, we layer out the veal. We put the, uh, we use the uh, sweet carbogol. We layer the sweet carbogol on the veal. We press the meat 
the stuffing mix onto the sweet kabagol. We sprinkle a little bit of shredded mozzarella, and we roll it up, and that's it. A very simple dish. How are you going to cook uh, that, uh, Carmine? Well, some people, you can pan fry them or you can bake them. Uh, I preferably, I like to brown them in a pan and then finish them off in the oven. Mm-hmm. And I don't like putting it in a sauce. I like putting the sauce over it if I'm when I'm serving it versus uh, the old-style beef brujols. I used to cook it right in the red gravy. Right. I still call it gravy. I'm sorry. but Yeah, that's okay. We know what you're talking about. Um, you know, the beef brujol and even the pork brujol, you, you know, most people in the old... The old style is just you lightly brown them and then let them finish in the gravy. Let it soak up in the gravy. Then all you taste is the gravy. So I like to cook it. Personally, I slice it, put it over my pasta or just in a casserole dish, whatever, and then sprinkle the gravy over it when I'm serving it. Right. It's very impressive. That's how I do it. Yeah. was it one of those dishes, Carmine? Now you make yours with veal, but it, it is made with beef. Was it one of those one of those things where you had to start out with a with a cut of beef that wasn't the most expensive, and so you had to do something special with it? Is that how it kind of started? Well, yeah, the old you know most of our good foods today used to be all peasant food. Sure. And, you know, because I've been in the meat business, my grandfather had a meat market, you know, and we used to serve, the, you know, everything, the, the old timers, the women that used to come in every day, do their shopping every day, you know, the cold cuts for tomorrow for their husband's lunch the next day, and whatever meat they're going to serve that night, and they would shop every day, and then they would buy all of the, the least, and... They made them good, and Brajol was one way to make a cheap piece of meat that had, you know, chewy or whatever, and uh, you pound it, roll it, stuff it, and you cook it in the gravy, and that tenderized it. So, yes, it's an old-style peasant food, just like we go to the restaurants now and we pay for beans on our bread. Right. You know. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I do. Eat, that was something I had to eat on stale American bread. Yes. Now you we know, call it. They uh... toasted it. They, <laughs> yeah. Now we, yeah, whatever they call it now, they get $25 for it. It's true. You're absolutely right. What's, uh, what's so impressive about the Projol is that you can, you can keep building it and layer upon layer upon layer and put a whole lot of, uh, of different things into it. And, so it becomes really something special and something fancy. Uh, and uh, no wonder. Nowadays, Carmine, we have Brajol winning awards on uh, award shows. The episode of The Bear that uh, featured Brajol just won a Golden Globe. So I think it's come a long way. You know, it's funny you mentioned this show. My wife watched that show last night, the awards. Yeah. And she asked me if I had seen the, the series, The Bear. I said, no, why? She says, well, we got to watch it. It won an award, but it's about food. And I enjoy watching anything on food. But 
So it's just funny that you happen to say that because up until last night, I never even heard of this. <laughs> well, I think you'll enjoy it. It's pretty intense. I was very surprised to find that they that they gave it an award as a comedy because it's the last thing that I would think of. Uh, it's pretty intense, but the uh, you'll get you'll get the vibe of the food in the restaurant. It's uh, about a uh, it's about a, a chef who's a culinary trained chef, and he inherits a kind of an old school restaurant back in his hometown of Chicago. And he comes back, and it's the trials and tribulations. But it's it's pretty intense. But they do some cooking there, and you'll recognize a, a lot of the techniques. It's pretty. It's a pretty good show. I am going to watch it. Definitely. I'm going to get back to it myself. I had watched a few episodes, and then I uh, had stopped. But I'm going to get back to it now. Carmine, I thank you so very much for taking some time to talk Brajol with me, and uh, I hope you uh, continue to be well. Uh, let me let me just uh, add one more thing. The you old bet. the old way. They used to use the beef top round because it was a long piece. You could slice it then and pound it. That was what they used the top round for because that's usually, it's a wasted piece of meat at that time. Nowadays, they use it for shaved steak. You know, we've, we've learned to, to uh, utilize every part of the animal that the Italians used to use at home. You bet. That, used, that cost nothing. You know, now it's expensive because we've created a market for it in every aspect of every part of that animal. Even also boco. That was the cheapest part of the whole animal at one time. It was the chewiest piece of meat. Right. Nobody wanted it, but the old Italians used to take it and either boil it or slow roast it forever. And now it's one of the most expensive meat dishes in a restaurant. So you'll find a lot of these new style recipes if you want to call it that, all come from old peasant food, Italian, Italian peasant food, you know, food that we used to make because it's what we could, you know, what we afford. Right. So top round is the meat that they used to use, but they can use anything, any kind of sliced meat, beef. The thing is to pound it and make it thin, or if you slice it real thin, and that's it. And that's it. And that's uh, wonderful. And I appreciate it very, very much. Thanks for uh, for the expertise. And it's always great to talk to you. Thanks again. You're welcome, Bruce. Anytime. All right, Carmine. Take good care. Food dude, Bruce Newberry.